From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Unconquered with Doc Staples. As always, this show brought to you by EPR Creations, bringing you the best of internet marketing and website development for an affordable price by Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina and by Luis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida. And finally, by Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida. A few things to uh, mention before we get too far along. Uh, first of all, some of you may have gotten some funky stuff going along with the uh, Unconquered podcast feed. Uh, I've been working on some back-end improvements, and my guess is that a few of you have probably gotten an episode or two, an old episode or two or three in your uh, podcast feed. So some old things may have appeared in your feed. Uh, that's because I've been working on some back-end changes and lots of things uh, that are ultimately going to allow the, the podcast to expand its reach and uh, do, do a lot of things for me to be able to uh, to improve this overall product and and also to improve the bottom line in uh, in in some things uh, for this this podcast. As uh, I've been doing this podcast now, this is the eleventh season. Uh, the first episode of this podcast, I, I was just looking through as I was moving some things over on the back end. First episode of this podcast was in August of 2013. It's really interesting to go back and, and take a listen to some of those old ones. Because uh, that, yeah, that really, really interesting. The podcast has come a long way, but uh, the analysis was actually turns out pretty good that preseason and uh, pretty pleased with that. But there are going to be a lot of things that I'm going to be able to do now uh, with with this this podcast, including some transcripts and some other things. Uh, this episode won't have one uh, just yet, but uh, episodes will be able to have some transcripting and, and some notes and, and some other things as, as we move forward. Uh, I'm going to have, I'm, I'm also going to have availability on YouTube and all sorts of other things that I've not done uh, over, over recent years. Uh, there's a new YouTube channel for this, for this show uh, that I'm going to have video and other things on. And I'm, I'm going to start doing some video podcasting and some live shows. Uh, some of you will remember that I did some live uh, video analysis shows and all of that, what, four or five years ago, but uh, haven't done it, I think, in the last three, uh, really, since the, the pandemic started. So uh, getting back into doing a lot of that and trying to modernize in some ways that uh, that really needed to be done for this podcast to to move forward in, in this next decade. Uh, you know, I've been around doing this a long time, and, and to some degree, it's really easy to fall into uh, some comfortable patterns and, and just be a middle-aged person doing uh, podcasting and not really improve with some of the tools and, and the, uh, the, the things that are available to make this a better product. And I'm really looking forward to being able to do that and to expand the reach of this. Uh, also going to be changing some of the advertising model. Uh, I've, I've honestly left a lot of money on the table over the years. Uh, I've, you know, I'm so grateful for the sponsors that I have and for their support, uh, but I'm also wanting to uh, expand the uh, the stable a little bit in, in that and, and also add in uh, some other uh, opportunities there uh, just to ultimately facilitate a little bit more uh, revenue. Makes sense. I mean, I think I don't think anybody out there will complain too much. Uh, those of you who listen to podcasts know that advertising is just part of the model. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately, I think I'll probably end up doing some sort of uh, ad-free subscription model, you know, maybe through the Patreon thing for those of you who uh, who want that. But we'll, I'll deal with that uh, down the line. That's something something later. But um, 
in any case, uh, the other thing I was uh, also amazed to learn that this podcast uh, should, I, I think it's a pretty good uh, expectation that this podcast should pass uh, 1 million overall downloads sometime this season, which is just staggering. I've, I've really not, not paid much attention to the downloads over the years uh, and then uh, was talking to uh, one of the people who I work with on all of this. And he pointed that out and was like, you're almost to a million downloads. It's like, oh, well, all right. And uh, so uh, before we get started, I do want to thank all of you who've been listening to this show for, for so long and uh, and who've been sharing it with friends and, and downloading it and everything. Uh, very grateful for that. And uh, of course, even more grateful for those of you who've sponsored and and uh, and have partnered with me on in the Patreon uh, side of things and have left uh you know, ratings in, in Apple Music and Spotify and all sorts of other places and, and, and feedback and all of that. Could not do the show without you, would not do the show without you all. And uh, really, really grateful for that. Uh, and really excited to start the uh, 11th season of this podcast as we move forward. Now, the first thing I want to discuss uh, is some of the conference realignment things that now, as most of you are aware, it is past the August 15th deadline for Florida State to move out without additional penalty for next year. So that uh, is, is helpful to kind of know where, where things stand in that regard. I, I'm not surprised that Florida State didn't announce anything before August 15th. Uh, honestly, didn't really expect that that would happen. I thought there was at most an, a very outside chance that that would happen before this August 15th. Uh, and especially as I got a little bit more information and, and and looked into this a little bit more over the course of, of the early part of August. My read on the situation is that Florida State ultimately is more likely to try to challenge the grant of rights in court before they actually depart, rather than taking on the enormous risk on the front end. So you leave and then you lose in court on the grant of rights and you are on the hook for half a billion dollars, essentially, or more. Uh, essentially, you, lose, you you don't have the rights to your media. You can't make any money. Essentially, so you're you're dead. <laughs> Basically, that's it. You're you're done. So you go from being thirty million, forty million dollars behind your rivals to get taking in none from from your uh, your media rights. So you can't afford to do that. You can do things. You know, sometimes you can you can you can press a you you can take a a a, a case to court. On a uh, anticipatory, I don't remember. I don't know the. I don't remember the legal term for this, but basically, uh, to get a judgment in advance of something happening. This is actually what happened with the uh, the recent Colorado case on uh, uh, the website developer who uh, brought the the uh, gay marriage case. I think it was uh, to the court. That was a a situation where that was that was done before. There had been anybody who had actually asked her to make a site for that. It was anticipatory before all of that. In, in, in certain cases, if there's sufficient uh, grounds or interest or standing for that that case to go forward, then the courts will consider it. Uh, though that's not always the, uh, always the, the favored approach. It makes sense for Florida State, in my opinion, to try to challenge if they are going to leave to try to challenge those sorts of things legally before uh, taking that kind of risk on the front end. Unless, of course, ESPN or, you know, whoever may buy ESPN or whatever down the line 
w- uh, would decide to actually negotiate things out with the ACC, you know, let's say Florida State was able to move over to the SEC. It's a possibility if the if the rights holder for both conferences decided, uh, if the if the partner for the rights uh, for both conferences came in and basically made the call, that could be done. Uh, so, and I think that's really what Florida State was hoping for this round didn't happen predictably. Uh, and I think as long as that doesn't happen, ultimately this is going to have to be challenged in court because the ACC is not going to settle, is not going to take a settlement in terms of those rights. That is, you know, because they they think that this is an airtight situation. So, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about Florida State taking, you know, half a billion or more in risk at that point. So that's that's a big deal. Uh, I do think there's a good chance we'll see some developments on this in the nearish future, probably after football season, if I had to guess. But that's that's my that's that's, that's sort of where I, I, I sit on that. Um, did get a few questions and, and a little bit of conversation about this since I, I did the last episode. Uh, one's from Jay Street. Uh, he, he points out, though, the only item I might take issue with on your last podcast was your thought that the teams that would remain within the ACC, if and when FSU and others take flight, would then simply get a larger slice of the ESPN television contract. For a year or so, that would presumably be true, but there is no way that I can envision ESPN is going to long-term support an ACC network channel and pay the same amount per year to the ACC if the biggest draws depart. They are canceling that pro- uh, contract ASAP, paying a buyout and moving on. And then uh, Josh had similar said about the recent pod. Do you think that if F- FSU leaves the ACC, ESPN will try to renegotiate TV terms, if that's even a possibility? Those are really good points, really good questions. And there's there's probably some truth to that in terms of uh, ESPN not really being interested in uh, negotiating out uh, or in, in remaining in the, the contract if we're talking about um, that kind of uh, <laughs> the, the, the biggest brands in the contract not remaining in that contract. So yeah, they'd have interest in, in trying to reduce that. But the fact is that they're getting a deal for the teams that are in the conference now. I mean, you think about the the ESPN offered the Pac-12 $30 million per team, and they didn't have Florida State or Clemson either. Uh, and most of that conference gets significantly worse uh, numbers than most of the ACC in that respect. So, you know, it's still a decent deal for ESPN, which tells you how bad of a deal it is for Florida State and, and Clemson, especially. Uh, but that that's sort of where they stand on that. And, you know, I think they would potentially stand pat for a while it would depend on who left and and um and then you also have i don't know when the next contractual look in period is that you have periods where uh the media partner espn gets to take a look back in at the at the contract and essentially determine whether or not it needs to be adjusted uh, and then that gets negotiated out a little bit but um so that would be possible that it would be reduced a little bit but i don't think it would be reduced a ton and because i think there'd be uh, some significant, you know, objections to that. And there would be legal action on that and everything else. So I don't think that's as, as obvious a, uh, a thing as it, as it might seem, uh, just because again, you're looking at, they're having the opportunity to get a great deal, even, even if Florida state and Clemson are not that in that program. Uh, so a lot would depend on whether anybody other than Florida State and Clemson decided to move on from the ACC. If, for example, 
you had North Carolina and Virginia and maybe one or two others leave. Now, now, now ESPN is almost certainly going to, going to step in and have some other issues there. But if it's just Florida State and Clemson that leave and the ACC retains the rest, I think ESPN would probably come close to standing pat. I don't think it would go down all that much. So yeah, that's just, again, that's guessing, but that's, that's where I, I, that's my, my thoughts on that. Uh, one last thing, and this is, uh, after a lengthy roundtable podcast that I participated in uh, with Inside Carolina, and those of you who uh, haven't heard that might want to might want to go and take a listen to that. That was from about uh, half a week ago, uh, maybe a week ago now. Um, but uh, there's one very well uh, well schooled and and knowledgeable lawyer who uh, explained one thing to me that I think was very helpful in terms of the grant of rights because I'd mentioned. That, you know, and I'm sure some of you who are well connected as well have heard some discussion about Florida, Florida State potentially, if all things, you know, if there's no other options, potentially trying to take a sovereign immunity angle to the grant of rights and basically saying, look, uh, you know, we're, we're a sovereign institution of the state, uh, we're an institution of the sovereign state of Florida, and, you know, you can't contractually bind us this way because of uh, the protection of state sovereignty in a uh, via the 11th amendment of the, uh, constitution of the United States. So, you know, that, that being a possible option, uh, this, this attorney clarified something on there that I think should be, uh, put on the table as well. And that is, uh, that the grant of rights, the type of grant of rights that, that Florida state is dealing with here, that the ACC has was designed specifically to avoid sovereign immunity arguments. So, uh, it is basically, Working off of the uh, the old 1908 SCOTUS case called Ex Parte Young, you can look this up. And that case held that sovereign immunity does not protect state officials when they act unconstitutionally, even if a state government specifically authorizes their actions. So, if the ACC has a property interest in FSU's media rights, which is why the grant of rights transfers the rights to Florida State's media content in the language that it, that it does, uh, then the ACC has a property interest in those media rights. If a Florida state official were then to act, to break that contract with the ACC, to try to take that property interest away without compensation or with, you know, even with compensation that was unacceptable to the ACC and then attempt to, you know, hide behind sovereign immunity. I, the, the, the most likely outcome based on ex parte young would be a 14th amendment violation of the takings clause. And the, uh, officials who attempted that act could be then taken to federal court for injunctive relief. And it would make a lot of folks really vulnerable. And ultimately, you know, Florida state would probably have to pay that. So it's not, uh, not likely that that would work, even though that has been bandied about some, so something worth, uh, worth discussing there. Uh, I know there's a lot of legal jargon, but nevertheless, <laughs> we are in a weird, weird time of college football where, and college sports in general, where all of this stuff is actually part of the discussion. So getting back to the actual football stuff, uh, the other thing that happened since the last episode is that the Daryl Jackson waiver was, uh, it was finally released that that waiver had been denied and uh, Florida state of course has filed an appeal. That appeal is underway. And I'll say this about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was, I was convinced I was 
convinced that there was basically 0% chance that Daryl Jackson would win his appeal and wind up playing for Florida state in 2023. And that really didn't change until the Tez Walker situation at UNC happened. And it's a similar situation where Tez Walker is a wide receiver transfer who is, you know, slated to be an all ACC caliber player for, for North Carolina transferred in to play with Drake may obviously. And this is also his second transfer, but his situation is, is a little bit different and it's even more controversial in that, in the, in that respect, because his first stop was at NCCU NC uh, North Carolina central. And he never played it down for them because they canceled their season during COVID and then canceled spring practice at which point he then transferred to Kent state where he then was very, very good and then transferred to to UNC. So he's only ever played it down at one place, but because it was his second transfer and he had been enrolled at both institutions and all of that, he was denied. So there are some differences between those cases because Daryl Jackson actually played at Maryland before transferring to, to Miami. But those two cases immediately got linked because they were released on the same day and have enough similarities in terms of details, especially since both players transferred before the NCAA changed the, the, the rule, the guidelines in January, those guidelines uh, changed January 11th and both young men transferred in, decided to transfer in December, moved and, and did all of that. And then, officially enrolled in classes, Daryl Jackson enrolled in classes at Florida state on December not or on January 9th. And then the, the guidelines for the NCAA changed on January 11th. So the problem is that those guidelines, I mean, that's you're, you're basically determining that someone should be judged by rules that were not in place when that person started playing the game, when that person transferred, it was under one rule. And then you're going to try to judge by the, the, the second rule. That's a pretty reasonable case. That's a pretty strong case that these players have that, look, you can, you should not be able to change the rules midstream and screw us over this way. Both players have that argument. And then Tez Walker has the additional argument of, look, I never played a down for the other other team because they canceled their season during COVID. Like, come on. So the fact that those two players cases have been linked the way that they have in the media. And then also the way that the politicians have gotten involved. The governor of the state of North Carolina <laughs> went on an inside Carolina podcast and specifically appealed to, you know, did an interview on this and then wrote a letter and, and appealed to the NCAA. You've had members of, of the U S Congress that have appealed to the NCAA on behalf of Daryl Jackson. When you start to get that kind of thing, the NCAA the NCAA might just budge on on those things. And I think it's very likely that the NCAA, or at least reasonably likely that the NCAA changes their mind on the Tez Walker situation because of the fact that he didn't play it down and and you've got the you know changing the rules midstream and 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 the political the political uh hot button issue that this has become. It just makes the NCAA look bad. And then if they clear Tez Walker, but not Daryl Jackson, that also is, is complicated. So the fact that it's connected to the Tez Walker situation, I think actually helps Jackson's case. 
and the fact that the politicians have gotten involved and that this has become sort of a public embarrassment f- further helps the case. So I, I, I still look, I, I'm, I'm not going to count on the NCAA to do the right thing in pretty much any case. So I still, if I had to bet on this, if I had to gamble on this, I would say that the NCAA is still not going to approve uh, Jackson's appeal, that he's going to win his appeal. I, I, I would guess that he's going to lose his appeal and the NCAA is going to do the wrong thing. Just that's just the way I've, 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 I've seen it happen too many times. The NCAA consistently does the wrong thing when it comes to, to players. But at this point, I do think it's a non-zero chance that he actually is, that he does win his appeal and he might be on the field for Florida state in 2023, which is the first time in, you know, maybe a month that I've really felt that there was a real chance. I mean, might be Lloyd Christmas odds, but as I've trained my toddlers to say, whenever I say maybe, so you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah. So, you know, that's not too bad. Um, there's, there's at least a non-zero chance until, you know, we all find out should be sometime next week that those, that those appeals are, that the decision on those appeals is, is handed down and it would be really good for both programs for sure. Uh, if, if the NCAA actually did the right thing, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical, but Hey, yeah. So few, few other things from camp before we, uh, before we wrap up, uh, number one is it really does look like that Destin Hill is, is going to be ready sooner than expected at wide receiver. I mean, he is, he's different. He, he moves differently. He, he's physically different, uh, and, and the question that I had when he came in is, first of all, you know, how rusty would he be after years off of football? And, and, and I think there still is some stuff he's knocking off. I mean, he's not, he's not as, uh, in rhythm as he might have been if he'd have been able to say early enroll right after high school. But the other thing that I wondered is, you know, the extra physical maturity that comes from being older when, you know, how much is that going to impact things? And if he stayed in shape and all of that, and he clearly stayed in shape. And I think the fact that he's older and physically has further matured, and I think also just the fact of being older and overall maturity has really helped him. And, you know, I, I think he's going to see real time by midseason. I, I, and might see real time out of the gate, even at wide receiver. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see him in the rotation, in the slot, day one. Uh, might not be day one just because of LSU and maybe you want to stick with a little bit more veteran presence there just for some consistency. But again, I think Hill is putting himself in the position where you have to think about it, whether or not you actually want to just put the freshman out there. And that, that's, that's saying a lot. And, and he is an NFL type talent. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Uh, other thing that's, I think become clear is that, you know, replacing the punt returner, spot is something that we talked about in in the spring or early summer with uh, Micah Pittman being gone and and Pittman being such a huge contributor last year as a reliable punt return option. And you think about how much those those muffed punts against LSU by LSU impacted that game and how uh Micah Pittman's consistency just catching the football as a punt returner last year and being fearless in that respect and consistent in that respect, how much that helped Florida State last year. 
that would that we all thought was going to be the the part that of, of Micah's game that that Florida State would miss most coming into this year, and that was a that was a question mark of who's going to take that role. And I think Florida State has has found a guy that's going to be that kind of consistent catching punts, and that's that's Keon Coleman. Now you really don't want your stud NFL wide receiver taking that risk a bunch, but you know, especially if he's a little bit on the taller side and maybe a little more vulnerable to you know getting cut down lower level and lower leg and all that. But at the same point, I mean, nobody batted an eye when Peter Warwick was back there or Greg Reed, you know, some guys that were really important position players as well. And in my view, if you've got a guy that can consistently catch the punt and, you know, is going to catch everyone on the fly and make sure that even if it's just a, a, a fair catch, he's going to be consistent about that. Then you put him back there. And Keon Coleman is that I, I think I think they've they found that. Now, Destin Hill also can be a punt returner. And I think in some games, I would expect to see him get some reps there as well. But he's dropped some in, in practice and all that and still has a little bit of rust to knock off in that respect. I think he's a bit more of a big play threat when he is punt returner. But again, the priority for me, if you can just have a guy back there who could catch the ball on the fly on virtually every punt all season and do nothing but that, I'm happy with that. You're just saving all that hidden yardage and... No risk, done. You're my punt returner. That's it. And I think they they may well have that with Keon Coleman. So that's a that's a very very good development. That uh, with with Micah Pittman no longer out there to do that, they've found somebody who I think can do it as well as Pittman did. So so that's great. Uh, the other thing is the, the the other stuff in terms of camp. As far as I'm concerned, from here they just need to get and stay healthy, and and specifically make sure that the the bell cow guys are ready to go. So that means, you know, Jared Verse, Johnny Wilson, Keon Coleman, those guys, keep those guys in green jerseys, keep those guys in bubble wrap until you get to game week and then, you know, get them ready, get and make sure that they're just in shape and ready to roll, that they're taking their reps, but don't let them get in any situation where, you know, they might get cut blocked or something like that, anything like that happening in practice, nothing. Keep those guys healthy, keep them in bubble wrap, and there are a few others, keep them in bubble wrap from here and be ready to go you know, with a full strength roster coming into the LSU game. To me, the ma- the main concern at this point going into the LSU game is, is really Fabian Lovett, who, you know, really hasn't been much. It's not, it's an open secret. I mean, nobody's really reporting on this because of Florida state's rules uh, in terms of being in practice, but, uh, but it's an open secret, right? It's not exactly hidden information that, that Fabian Lovett has, he's been dressing out, but he's not really been participating in, uh, in the day-to-day position drills and, and scrimmage and all of that. He's been uh, rehabbing a little bit and, and getting himself to where he's ready to go. And there's generally been hope and expectation that he'll be ready for the LSU game. But I, at this point, I don't think that's a guarantee, right? And and that's something that I, I think is is the biggest concern at this stage of, of, of camp, you know, 13, 14 days into camp. Uh, that's what you... you, you I think that's the biggest concern. You you were a much better team with him on the field last year than not. Again, defensively with Lovett on the field, they were a sixty four percent defensive success rate. With him off the field, they're a fifty one percent, I believe. So thirteen percent difference with him on and off the field. That's a huge difference. So uh, yeah, and the, and the 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 concern that I have is that that foot surgery that he had on the fifth metatarsal last year, that putting a screw in and all of that. That 
foot surgery has a track record, especially for bigger athletes, as ultimately requiring a follow-up that then uh, has to get, you know, has, requires some some cleanup and all of that, and then some additional rehab before that guy's ready to go. Now, this is the the, the question I have, and I actually don't know this the, the answer to this, and I've not asked around on this. But frankly, I probably would not get the answer that I want on this one way or another. I wouldn't get an answer, but. I don't know whether or not it's the case that maybe late in the summer he had that second surgery that is just basically to be expected. More than 50% of the athletes, especially bigger bodied athletes that have that the, the initial surgery that he had wind up requiring a second surgery to clean up, clean it up because the, uh, the screw and that the, the stuff in the bone there uh, ends up just getting real fragile. If that's the case, if he's already had that second surgery and he's just dealing with the cleanup and working his way back from that, then I think that's actually best case scenario. At that point, you, you basically know the timeline and you know, the button, the bone is healthy and everything else is, should be, should be in, in place. He's just got to work his way back and, and, and be able to get ready to go on that time frame. I think that may well be what it, ha- what happened again. I'm speculating here. So, you know, don't shoot the messenger since I'm not delivering a message. I'm speculating. Uh, the, the, more concerning thing would be if, if he's not had, you know, that sort of cleanup and they're trying to address it with the possibility that, you know, that sort of thing to trying to avoid that when there's been some other things going on. And, and, and again, I don't know what the, what the full cause of what, what all that is just know, you know, every, again, a couple other outlets did discuss this. So I, I don't feel uh, unjustified in discussing it as well that, you know, he was in a boot at the beginning of camp though he, you know, dressed out and did walk around and was walking, you know, perfectly fine and all of that. But he he'd been in a boot around the facility and all of that. And again, this has been sort of an open uh open secret. So I don't feel bad about about discussing that. I think LSU and everybody else has known this for a while. Uh the the only real question is whether or not he's really going to be fully ready. And to me, that is that is the biggest concern at this stage because I think most of the other concerns that Florida State might have had going into the season have been addressed in camp. I, I think they've figured out where where they are with the with the depth issues in uh, at the safety position. I think they feel comfortable with what they've got there. Uh, I think they've basically figured out what they have on the defensive line, and and they're in pretty good shape there. As long again, knock on wood, as everybody uh, stays healthy the rest of camp, they they they've got some players there. They're in good shape moving, moving forward. So, uh, and to me with where they are, they really, in all honesty, they really only need Fabian Lovett for four games this year. Now, two of those games are in the first month, the LSU game and the, and the Clemson game. And those are the two most important games that they need him for this year, given the way that those two teams are very physical and have, and are going to try to run between the tackles and all of that. But essentially, if you have a fully healthy Fabian Lovett and he can play full go in those two games, then you really can just kind of play him in limited reps, if at all, the rest of the season, except for maybe the Miami and Pitt and, you know, maybe five games, Miami, Pitt and, and, uh, and Florida would be the other games that you kind of look at and go, yeah, you you kind of really ideally would, would want to have in there, but you feel like you've got enough depth at those positions now that you should be able to win against the rest of that schedule, even with the other guys. But, you know, if you don't have Fabian Lovett against LSU, I think that's a, that's a, and if there's no Fabian Lovett and no Daryl Jackson against LSU, I I think that 
that's concerning. And the same thing again, you know, with Clemson, those two teams without those two guys in the interior, that becomes a concern, but that, and that, that is the one concern that I, I have, you know, at this stage of camp. And again, I, I should emphasize the expectation has been all along that Lovett will be ready for the LSU game. And there was no reason to push him to, you know, get reps and all of that in camp when he basically just needs to get fully healthy and ready for the LSU game. They already know what he can do. He already knows what he can do. If he's practicing and ready to roll the week of the, of the LSU game, then none of the, none of this concern really matters. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's more about just not knowing on our end that leads to some of that, some of that concern. It may be just unwarranted in the end. And if he is out there, and if he is fully healthy for that LSU game, then you know I really think Florida State is in is in good position. We'll talk about that next episode. Uh, I've got lots of mailbag stuff that I'm going to address in the next episode, and then next week I'm going to uh, release. I'm going to begin releasing the uh, preseason previews, which will walk through uh, position groups and each side of the ball, and then uh, do my expectations for the season and all of that. I'm going to be basically putting out a lot of content. Over the next week, finally getting to the season, getting to the opportunity where this is about analysis and not about rumors or, or sources or any of the other stuff. The, we're getting to the fun part as far as I'm concerned. And I'm looking forward to lots of opportunities to go through that fun part with, uh, with everybody over the course of this season. This has been Unconquered with Doc Staples. I'm your host, Doc Staples, also known as Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. The Unconquered Podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, ShenRealEstate.com in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Garage Makeovers of Palm Beach in Broward County, and the Unconquered Podcast shop at UnconqueredPodcast.com, which features stickers, magnets, and other seminal gear. Thanks also to those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast from supporters. I'm especially grateful to those above the dynasty level, that is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Jonathan Kennedy, Lee Caswell, Travis Smith, Tyler Kashishki, Dave Blair, and Bert Bertoldi. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, post us on social media, and tell a friend. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. I made this.